Um, so let's go ahead and jump into verse 22 for, through verse 36. Um, this is, let's see here. Just, yeah, this is the whole recording of Peter's sermon, this, this little take here. So after this is going to be the reaction. So we're going to spend most of our time here tonight and just a little bit in the next, next part. So this is what Peter says. You men of Israel, hear these words. Now here's another very minor Bible reading point. He identifies his audience right off the bat. Now this is really important because even in the epistles and the writing, when he says words, sometimes we interpret them as like transitional words when he says brethren. What we can know is brethren in the New Testament one of two things. Jews in the flesh or Christian brothers, people who are saved, right? One thing I always like to do when I'm studying a text is, does the author tell us who it's written to? Here, he's saying, ye men of Israel. So Jews are the one he's preaching to. And even throughout the book of Acts, we see that. It's a very minor point, but it's significant when you're trying to interpret certain or, or discern certain doctrines and theology, right? Because... If, if he's talking to somebody, and the most, the, the first example that comes to mind is, you know, he stands at the door and knocks, Revelation chapter 3. And, and the whole Billy Graham side of things has been, you know, God is knocking on the door of your heart for you to come, and that whole thing. And if you look at explicitly who John the Revelator is writing to, it's the seven churches. So that's not the context. Not that there's not a degree of truth in that, but we don't want to mistake in that. So right at the beginning, again, that's just kind of a pet peeve of mine when I study the Scriptures, is does it tell us who it's talking to? Here he does. You men of Israel, so Jews are here. Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God... You have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption." Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. So from verse 25 to 28, that's all a quote. I just want to point that out to you. So now in verse 29, we're going back to Peter's words. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, And knowing that God hath sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, saying this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father, the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, 
Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made the same Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Mm, some good stuff. So, something I want to point out here that I think is an important um, stepping away from content of what he is saying. Let's notice the type of evangelistic appeal that he is using here. It's very experimental. He's appealing. Now notice, and I've bolded some of these words. Ye men of Israel. So, you. He's pointing at them. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you. So now look at what he's doing here. He's not appealing to his own subjective experiences with the Lord necessarily. He's saying he's been proved, approved of God in the middle of you, in your midst. So he's appealing to their experience with Jesus. He continues that same thing. How is he he approved in front of you? He tells us by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did by him in the middle of you. So again, we know now he's even two parts of this. One, he's appealing to their experience. And two, he's um, uh, lost my second point here. He, okay, so let's keep going here because this is the point I was going to make. And ye yourselves also know, and then you skip down to the next bullet part, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified him. Skip down to verse 33 where the bolded part right before verse 34. Which ye now see and hear. And then he appeals one more time to what they had done. So I want to encourage us as we consider attempts to evangelize. Notice what's going on here. He's appealing to their experience with God in the midst of Jesus. And he's overlaying that with Scripture which is a very effective way to communicate to lost people who don't necessarily agree with what you're teaching, especially if they have a religious background. I've seen before sometimes people, for lack of Bible knowledge, in their attempt to reach people, never include anything biblical, which to these people would have gone nowhere because they're Jews who highly value the Old Testament. On the other hand, I've seen people try to almost um, with no spirit or, or acknowledgement of our personhood just beat somebody down with doctrine and Bible. And to me, Peter, we see in the example of him preaching here, through the help of the Holy Spirit, he weaves these things together effortlessly. Now, a second thing that we'll point out that we, we say in this... Um, first bullet point. I'm just going to read it. It says this. Notice Peter clearly directs the message at those who put Jesus to death. He doesn't mince words or seek to gently convince them of sin. He calls out their sin clearly and unapologetically. You saw the miracles and wonders performed by Jesus. Your wicked hands have crucified him. You know the scriptures that teach of the Messiah's resurrections. You have heard our testimony of the resurrection of Jesus. You see the witness of the Spirit right now. 
you should know that this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. In a, this is where we have to be careful not to be too influenced by our culture. Our culture is very soft. And we have sometimes, I've heard it said before, we try to live by the 11th commandment as that is be nice. He wasn't nice here. He was much the opposite. But everything he was saying was necessary to convict of truth. They killed God. What greater sin could you commit than killing God? And so he says, not only did you kill God, God tried to show you he was God, and he showed the greatest witness that could ever be in the resurrection, and now you see what's happening. We're doing miracles like literally the words that they are hearing are a miracle because they're hearing in their own languages. And you're trying to say we're drunk. No. Jesus, God made Lord in Christ, and your wicked hands crucified Him. And today, I think we have to beware at times, and and I say this foremost to myself as a person who's always preaching in front of you all, not to strive to be nice for fear it's going to hurt somebody's feelings. Right? I would rather hurt their feelings here than their feelings be hurt for all of eternity in hell. Now in saying that, I will acknowledge intent on the heart of the speaker is very important. There's a difference in me taking a true message and angrily trying to beat somebody down or coerce somebody in fear. You've seen that. I've seen that. That's wrong. I've also seen somebody get up with words that I think, Peter, this is how I, and and, and there's no way to know this other than the fact that the Spirit was a witness to these things. And there's a difference in saying that with a deep, unwavering conviction undergirded by love. Of Look at what you've done. But there's hope in Christ. And one of the ways that intent can manifest from a speaker is where the message ends. Because to me, if I really love somebody, not only am I going to say you're guilty of this, but praise God there's a way to be rescued from it. Now the proportion of that, the Holy Spirit has to lead us because the audience is different everywhere we go. So I've, I've heard before wrongfully preachers say things like, you know, 80% of your preaching should be law and 20% should be hope. I don't think you can ascribe some percentage. It's the needs that the people have that God alone knows, right? But I do want to kind of say, especially if you have children or loved ones, I'm not saying be forceful and mean, but I'm also saying beware of our cultural tendency to be too gentle with the truth. They're wicked in their hearts, deserving of eternal damnation.
And God has made a remedy for them. And if the preaching of the gospel is going out, they're rejecting him and makes them all the more worthy of damnation. And yet God is long-suffering, still calling them to repentance. Again, I I hope you can see the point here. I'm not trying to be too forceful, but I can't help but point out just the bare facts of how he preaches here. Of course, you you could point out the audience he's preaching to. And that's a good point. They were hard-hearted people who had crucified the Messiah. And it took a sledgehammer to break the heart. Um, I digress in that point. Somebody have a thought about that or another aspect or avenue of that you want to clean up for us? Well, it kind of seems to me that the way that uh, Peter is is speaking here is kind of, it's in a non-accusatory way, but it's very matter-of-fact. It's like he's given them the facts, and he's going to let the Holy Spirit Mm -hmm. do do the the accusations on it. Uh, I mean, he's just stating the facts. He said, look, you guys did this. He's not getting in their face and, and doing, you know, like a prosecutor. Sure. Uh, so it, it kind of seems to me that, that that's how, how he's presenting it. The fact that he's, uh, he's digressing, if you want to call it that, to the, to the Scriptures to say, okay, you know, you did this. Here was this man who was doing these things and you did this. And here's what the Scriptures say. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's kind of like just sitting down with somebody that you do care about. Mm-hmm. If you care about somebody, you know, you're not going to try to make them feel like the lowest thing that ever has been. That's the Holy Spirit. Sure, absolutely. So uh, it, it just kind of looks like, to me, the way that it reads, it kind of looks like that it's more of a matter of fact. So would you say a fair way to put it is, the words are certainly accusatory, the words themselves. But the tone of it is, this is settled. This is it. Which to me can get, what I would guard against is, we're doing it the opposite way. I won't accuse you directly in my words, but my tone will berate you in guilt and fear and fearmonger to coerce something and what you're saying if I'm reading you right is that part is the Holy Spirit's job right I can buy that and the one point that he brings into the scriptures here where he references the scriptures is verifying a fundamental theological point that is being made here which is I'm going to prove to you that the Messiah was supposed to die and be resurrected which is something that the Jew did not even to this day think that was the role of the Messiah. And so the one part that he pulls in Scripture is to convince them of this doctrinal truth. The Messiah has always been prophesied to die, that his body would not see corruption or be left in the grave. That's what the hell means. It should have been translated the grave. Um, And so that's the next point we want to make out of this what he brings up here. So let's look at, um, let's see here. 
the last bullet point on page 7. It says, As we will see throughout the book of Acts, Peter uses Old Testament scriptures and Jewish figures when preaching to the Jews. He references Psalms 16, 18, that shouldn't be 18 through 11, probably 8 through 11, but I'd have to go look and, and see there. And it says that David could not have been speaking of himself because his tomb was with them. Rather, Peter declares that David was speaking of a descendant, the Messiah, that God would raise from the dead to sit upon his throne forever. That man was Jesus, whom we just saw resurrected. Um, and so he makes that point again in verses, um, I'll say, what, 24? No. Yep, 24, 25 through 28. That's what he's talking about in verse um, 27. Because thou wilt not leave my soul in the grave, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. So he's prophesying of his death. That is, um, David is doing that in his resurrection, which, again, that's going to be a really big sticking point to even Jews today. They're expecting a political leader to come with the stature and power of David to restore a political kingdom. And so they've misinterpreted what that figure, who that figure is. Whereas the true Messiah is transcending mere world politics. And he's talking, and it's, it's spiritual, which makes so much sense to me today. The, way, the reason the Jew is, is off today is because they're still thinking natural. Isn't that what we see all through the time of Jesus? Is they're seeing things naturally rather than God is talking about spiritual things here. Now, I do want to back up and I'm, I'm jumping around here, and I apologize for that. Look at verse 23. So this was something we talked about in the Gospel of John study that I want to reiterate is kind of uh, passively taught here. Um, we ask you the question then, who killed Jesus? And, you know, people like to hotly debate that at times. When the scriptures are very clear, the Father killed Jesus. He sacrificed His Son. And so we spent a long time talking about that in the Gospel of John one day. Notice even just the way that verse 23 is worded. Him, speaking of Jesus, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. So this is not the Jews delivered him over. It's their fault. This isn't Pilate delivered him over. It's the Romans' fault. This is talking about a determinate council, I think we can safely assume this is the Trinity in, in time past. They, at some point, delivered over Jesus to carry out God's will of crucifixion. Right? So, and it, and it tells us, you know, we read in the scriptures of him being a lamb slain before the foundations of the world. So there's a, that... There was a commitment of God for Christ to be sacrificed. And I just wanted to bring that up in lieu of the discussion we had over the book of John. Here's another verse that's referencing ultimately God sacrificed his son. And then it says in the very next taken, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified him. You were the instruments, but you were not the orchestrators. God the Father was the orchestrator of these events, even though... There was sin also in carrying that out as, as uh, the instruments. Let's look at the next page, page 8. 
In addition, Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God and sent forth His Spirit, which explains the miracle you're seeing and hearing right now. Now, here's where I love, uh, one of the many things I love about this sermon is it all comes full, there are multiple circles here, and He brings it all to one final point. So they're meeting together, they've got Pentecost going on, and they start seeing these men doing these things. The last time they've been assembled in this setting, the Jesus question was all that was consuming them. So the last two times they've met for festivals as a Jewish people, it's been interrupted. The normal festivities have been interrupted. One by Jesus and how it completely consumed the city of Jerusalem at that Passover 50 days earlier. And now they come together and they're hearing something going on. They go see what it is. And these Galileans are performing miracles. And so what I love about Peter's ending point is he like finishes, he explains all of it. It's like, here's who Jesus was. Here's what the Messiah was. Because you think he's a political figure and he's not. He's actually a spiritual one. Let me show you the Old Testament. This is what he is. This is what these men are doing. And this is how it all is harmonious within the providence of God and purpose of God. And so I love that he's saying, like, this is what's going on right now in front of you. And he pulls Joel and the prophet of Joel and the day of the Lord that's coming. And what's so all these things are happening. And he just leaves it with, you know, and, and what I love so often about the scriptures is that it can so concisely summarize such complexity. And that's what happens here, is he's explaining all the harmony of these things so briefly and um, explains, you know, their starting point was they're drunk. And he's saying, no, 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 there's a lot going on here. And so succinctly explains what that is to where it obviously is super convincing, Like one of the things that I love about if you're reading a book or watching a movie is when they can have what feels like, you know, 10 or 15 plots going on among certain characters and relationships and sub-characters and the ending brings it all together. That to me is a really good novel or movie is, wow, how did you do that with just such a brief 30-second clip or even sometimes one line gives, you know... brings the harmony to it. And that, to me, in a much more powerful way, is what he does. Um, And so, he ends the sermon, and um, they have used Jesus as a, he's a rebel, a blasphemous rebel, worthy of crucifixion. And he gets done preaching, and he finishes with, God has made him both Lord and Messiah. And the very next words are, they were pricked in their hearts. Like, that's so awesome. How much further extreme could you go from? From believing he is a blasphemous man worthy of death, and you're calling for his crucifixion, to now you're convinced not only is he innocent, he's actually the Messiah. And as Brother Danny alluded to, that is only done by the Holy Spirit, convincing the heart of somebody like that in such an extreme. And um, 
just an awesome, I don't know, I just love the way that, that he ends that. Um, somebody have a comment about any of those verses? I'm sure we missed some things. Verses 22 through 36. I think it's interesting to note that just what, a couple of months prior to this, that Peter had basically no understanding. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Peter's role in all this, and, and you're, you get me started on a, a kick here because I love that part. Like Peter's experience in all this is just fascinating to me. You know, two months earlier, he's just a blubbering novice idiot. <laughs> now he's like leading the charge. It's just, it's so awesome uh, to see that. Yeah, and I know I've mentioned many times before, there's something I think that happened whenever Jesus in the middle of the trial looked over at Peter and it says he went out and wept bitterly. Because from that point forward, he's just different. You know, and I, but that's one of the things that, I don't know, Peter, the more that I study the Apostle Peter's life, the more I just, I love so much just what hope he brings me in my own life of, wow, you can do that kind of thing, and God can still do that. Like, that's just encouraging. Somebody else have a comment about any of these verses? So let's read the next section, verses 37 through 47. I'm going to resist getting in uh, past um, too far into page 9. We'll hit the sub-bullet points in page 9. That'll probably take us to the end of our time anyway, but I really want to spend a considerable time on after the salvation of these people, what did they do? I think that's really worthy of our deliberate consideration, and we'll do that on Sunday night before we come back. Um, And how much of that is pattern we should follow, and how much of that is an isolated event in history. So let's go ahead and read all, all 11 verses. Though. Now when they heard this, they heard a sermon, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about three thousand souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord, Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. All right, so man, there's a lot. There's a lot in those eleven verses. Um, so, a couple of things that I'll point out before we get to the kind of the obvious verse that needs some explanation. That's Acts two thirty eight because that's a stumbling block for a lot of people because it seems to imply that baptism is necessary to be saved. And so we want to spend uh, deliberately some time explaining that verse. But before we do that. So, let's talk about the context of what happens. He preaches, they're pricked in the heart. I love this part too. They initiate, what do we do? 
looks a little different today, doesn't it? Today, we preach, and then very often, we say, you need to seek the Lord. You need to come pray. You need to come pray. And, we, and I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong. All I'm saying is, I love that the people's hearts are so troubled by the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit that they're just crying out, what do we do? And they're wanting salvation. Um, I don't know, I just, that's just a, a good thing. I, I pray that the Lord would bring that into our place, is that this um, cultural norm of just, you know, waiting until the appropriate time in service and waiting until maybe I feel enough, you know, whatever. I don't even want to try to put things in people's minds. I just hope if you're lost, when you feel an overwhelming burden to seek the Lord, seek the Lord. Run to the Lord. Don't try to fall in with some organized manner of doing things that we've come up with. Because I'll confess to you, we're just doing the best we know. And we don't know much about spiritual things that need to happen right now. The Spirit does. And so as the Spirit compels, respond to the gospel. And at this church, I've heard stories. The preacher was preaching and somebody felt compelled to pray and they couldn't focus and they ran out the door and they got away and they just had to seek the Lord and do that. Or... I've been in a service before where somebody had preached uh, and somebody didn't understand what he'd said and wanted to understand. Like his heart was moved and troubled by what he heard, but he didn't understand, like, what do I actually do to be saved? And the, the young man actually said that, like, he raised his hand and said, I believe what you're saying, but I don't know what to do. And so, as somebody doing the preliminaries, I explained it to him. And I was just like, I wanted to say, God bless you to have the courage to just say, help me. Um, That fluidness, we need to promote. Like, if there's something that somebody has said, I, I was in a service one time where somebody stood up and said, there's a whole lot of people here that may not have understood what the preacher just preached on about salvation. And he pointed to somebody and said, you came from the outside of this. Would you give your testimony? And the person stood up and gave their testimony. It was unusual. It was so effective. It, it, was, it was just just right. Because there was a family or a few groups of people there that that person's testimony I felt like helped to elucidate what the preacher was saying. And really, and, and I don't say that to say well, we need to do that. I say that to say that was unusual, but I believe it was of the Lord. And if that's the case, that's what needs to be done. And I want to encourage as Christians... You know, that we don't fall suspect to, you know, wondering, well, I've never seen this before. I've never heard anybody do this before. And, and um, 
let's follow the Lord. And if you're lost, these people say, I don't know what to do. Help me. And notice, Peter then, so here's how the sermon went. He preached. They cried out and said, I have a question. Peter and the apostles began to speak to them. So here's the way I imagine it happening, going back to our earlier lessons. You have all of these groups of people from different places with different cultural understandings of religion and God and who Jehovah is and all these things, and they're speaking different languages, and all the apostles have been anointed with a gift to speak different languages. And so Peter gets up, he preaches in one language, but they understand it in all their own languages. That's part of the miracle. They then, there's this really weird thing that happens is they all begin to not know what the other people are saying and doing. Remember, when they say, what must we do? There's still 14 different languages there. So likely what is happening is there's a stir going on here of people who are weeping and crying and realizing we killed God. We killed the Messiah. And they're saying among themselves, what do we do? Right? And they're talking with one another. And then that begins to emanate to the big group where the author Luke here just consolidates it and says, the people cry out, what do we do? And then Peter gives a response to the whole. And then as I understand it, each of the apostles in these little subculture groups begin to teach as the need is there. Right? As each group has different specific needs and that's what it says or you know it tells us that they were part of that explanation here so it says that in verse um, 40 and with many other words did he testify and exhort and uh, say and saying save yourselves from this untoward generation so there's i guess i say all that to say it's it's when you flesh out the context of this story it's just different than what sometimes you would imagine it if you just read Acts chapter 2, they're all here. They all speak the same language. Somebody gets up and preaches. Then he says, you need to seek the Lord. Then they all bow down at an altar and they get saved and they go along their merry way. That's not what happens. And it also, and we'll get to this next week, accentuates the final point. You know, so all these people get saved, they get baptized, and then they come together in unity, fellowship, and doing all these things. But remember, they still don't speak the same languages. Like, isn't that cool? that all these different cultures of people are fellowshipping and breaking bread and staying in one another's homes. And like, I can't even understand what you're talking about. But the Spirit of God speaks one universal language to the heart and creates affection for the people of God, whether we can verbally understand them or not. Like, how amazing would it be to be saved and you watch God do a miracle on somebody who you can't even understand their language. And you're so in love with them and with what God's done that you're like, yeah, come stay with us. And it has to go through a translator. And then you're there fellowshipping and loving each other. And it's just the Spirit of God is there. Even in so much that you can't speak their language, but you're willing to have all things in common with them. What's mine is yours. Like, think.
transcendent love of God in all this and how that it completely transcends like our capabilities and understanding. It's just supernatural is what it is. It's just supernatural. And so many things, that's, that's Sunday's lesson. So back up for just a minute. So verse 38, and we got a pretty big um, portion of scripture on page nine about this. And there's a lot of explanations of this possibly. So um, give it to your consideration. So let's look at this, the last bullet point on page eight. Two questions are asked in the book of Acts at two different times. One, and I'll see if you can remember where this is at. There's an occasion where they say, what must we do to be saved? Does anybody remember where that location was of that text? Philippian jailer. The earthquake happens, and all the uh, men are still there. They could have left. They stay there. The man is going to commit suicide. And Paul and Silas had been singing. And the jailer comes down, and he says, what must we do to be saved? That's different than this question. Slightly different, but the implications of that are pretty substantial. They have just been convinced. So he was convinced he was about to kill himself. And he has seen something different in them. Obviously, he's heard them talk about salvation. So then he says, what do I do to be saved? They're convinced of something different. Being saved was part of it, but that was not their question. Their question was, we just killed the Messiah, now what do we do? So, it's a broader question than what must we do to be saved. And so Peter gives them the full answer. The answer that we ought to give people when they're wanting to completely give their life to Christ and be a follower of His. You need to be saved. But let's not stop there. Because in truth, is it not true that we would all say, I don't want somebody to just be saved. What do I want them to do? Be baptized, join his body, and become his ardent follower. And so Peter, when they cry out, we killed the Messiah, now what do we do? He says, you need to repent and be baptized and join this body of believers. Be with us and be his follower now. So his answer, I think, encompasses both those parts. And I could see somebody saying, I'm not convinced of that. And that's okay. Because he continues, he says, Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. So it sounds like he's saying, you've got to repent and you've got to be baptized in order to obtain the remission of sins. Remission just meaning forgiveness. What it sounds like he says. So... I don't get to, I'll get, we'll, we can talk about this as deeply as you want to talk about this. But he says, um, let's look at it, the three sub-points that we have mentioned here on verse 9. I'm sure some of you have done your own studies on this. Um, so let's look at the first bullet point real, here before we get to those three sub-points. This is in the NASB version. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. This scripture is often used by people who believe that baptism is necessary for one to be saved. Admittedly, it sounds like that after an initial read, but let's break down some breakdown is necessary. So point number one, a possible way to, to read this. A close grammatical glance at the text in the original reveals a possible explanation worthy of our consideration. The Greek word for 
is ice and has an alternate translation which could be rendered because. So think of it like this. If you're, you have a Greek sentence and you're a Greek translator, each word often has more than one meaning. So you have to pick what does this mean based upon the definition and the context of this sentence. So if you're an Anglican in the 1600s that believes baptism is necessary for salvation, then it makes sense that you're going to translate the word ice as you must be baptized for the remission of sins or in order to obtain the remission of sins because your doctrine supports that. If you think that the whole New Testament does not teach when you take it as a whole that baptism is essential, then you might ask this question. How else could the word ice be translated? And an option, a possibility, is the word because or because of. So if we just simply took that Greek word and plugged in that meaning, here's how it would read. Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ because of the forgiveness of sin. Because of the forgiveness of sins. So you need to do this because of the offer of forgiveness of sins. Right? So to me, that's a possibility. I don't I don't have a yay or nay on that one. I think it, it could be possible. Um, but let's look at another possibility and then we'll we'll open it up to you all. The likeliest meaning of the text, this is my opinion, is that Peter is not showing a link between baptism and forgiveness, but rather repentance and forgiveness. What they call out in terror, Peter responds with a command. Repent and be baptized. If you do that, you will be forgiven of your sins and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Not the indwelling, but the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this is a really important point to make that I think he's talking about in verse 38. In verse 38, at the very end of the verse, where he says, And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. He's not talking about when we get saved, we have the indwelling. He's talking about what they're witnessing, these, the miracles these people are doing. So he's saying, listen, if you repent, you're going to be forgiven. And if you're baptized, you're going to receive the gift, the miraculous gifts that you're witnessing of the Holy Spirit. Why do I think that's the likeliest meaning? Because as we go through the book of Acts, we're going to find either, see the two or three other examples of a, I think it's three other examples of a group of, of disciple or a group of lost people on two accounts and a group of disciples on one account getting baptized. And then as soon as they get baptized, they receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the supernatural anointing of the Holy Spirit. And so what the book of Acts shows us and, and I want to try to be as, as short with this as I possibly can. If you're a Jew who has been practicing Judaism and has believed the Messiah is a political figure for 4,000 years, it's going to take a lot to convince you otherwise. Just like if I came to you today and said, the whole Bible's wrong, I have a new book you need to listen to, your threshold would be really high to believe me. And justifiably so. And so he comes to them and he 
one of the things that happen when these people repent and believe and devote themselves being a follower is they're granted these supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit. And it is a convincing mechanism to the unbelievers around them. Like, this person believed, was baptized, and became a follower, and then they began to speak other languages, they began to interpret other languages, they began to prophesy, they began to heal, they began to do these miraculous things. Now, here's why it happens. I can understand why it happens three times in the book of Acts, and I have no idea about the fourth time. Here, these Jews have this happen, and it convinces other Jews. In chapter 8, Philip takes the gospel to the Samaritans. Remember, there is a start, there's, there's a wall of separation between Jews and everybody else. And so God knew the Jews are going to be skeptical of the Samaritans being part of this new multi-ethnic body. And so what does God do? When they, get, when they believe and they get baptized, they're given the same miraculous gifts that the Jews on Pentecost are given. And that is used as evidence that God is in this. In so much, the next time it happens is with the Gentiles, chapter 10. Cornelius, his whole household is baptized, and suddenly they're given these miraculous gifts. Here's how we can know this is part of the purpose. In chapter 11, the elders call Peter to the group of elders and say, what are you doing with those Gentiles? And here's Peter's defense. Here's what happened. I had this dream. And at the end of it, he said, and then I preached to them. They repented, got saved. I baptized them. And then they started showing the same supernatural gifts that God gave to us in Acts 2. What other thing could this mean than that this is rod of God? And it says of those Jewish elders, then they welcomed them. So one of the primary functions of the supernatural gift of the Holy Spirit was to convince the established, the Jewish Christian establishment that, listen, we don't need to separate based on ethnicity anymore. And so the first time this is used as a convincing mechanism is here in Acts chapter 2 with Jews and Paul saying, what do you need to do? You need to repent. You need to be baptized. You'll be saved or receive the forgiveness. Now, I love that he uses that too. Notice that he says forgiveness of sins. They were crying out, what do we do because of our sin of killing God? And he says, here's how you get forgiveness from sin. And then he says, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So that was a convoluted explanation. Somebody may be able to explain it better than that or have a different take on that. Anybody have a way that you would like to explain or us to consider Acts 2.38. This is one of about six or seven verses in the New Testament that you you probably need to know. Because the the most noteworthy religion in this area that believes in this is the Church of Christ, right? Or or Campbellism, right? That they believe baptism is part of it. And this is one of the primary verses they'll go to. And almost everybody there has this verse memorized. can repeat it off the cuff to you. And um, to me, the context of this situation, and also the last sub-bullet point we have here, is essential. Um, Any verse that seems to teach something that's 
this is a big deal. Like if, if baptism is necessary for salvation, that means to me the New Testament has to really show us that clearly, right? Like if it's a requirement for salvation, I would expect it to be all over the place in the New Testament. Um, I point out here just a very simple point that as you go through the Gospel of John, where the stated theme is belief to be saved, we only hear the word baptism one time in the Gospel of John. And it's in a parenthetical reference. If you remember in John chapter 4, whenever the, the woman of the well is about to take place, so Nicodemus has just happened in John 3, and we come to John 4, and it says just very passingly, that Jesus baptized, and then it says, well, not Jesus, but the apostles that were with him baptized these other people. That's all it says about baptism and the whole Gospel of John. So, to me, I would think, well, you have a book written by an apostle whose explicit purpose is about salvation. We want you to be saved is the purpose of this book. And you only use a requirement of salvation baptism one time in the whole book and it doesn't even come within an explanation about salvation explain that one to me right you would think if baptism was not so i use that point and all i'm trying to say is there has to be harmony in the scriptures and i think all of us here believe listen this is not an interpretation that you have to be baptized to be saved directly conflicts with very clear and I want to say innumerable references, but I want to say you pick the book and let's show you that it just teaches belief unto salvation. Like it's that prominent in the New Testament. But um, I'll stop there. Somebody else. He didn't come off the cross to be baptized. Mm-hmm. He was saved. Or he was going to heaven. Mm-hmm. I think he can pass that argument. Absolutely. According to the context of this passage, it says they that gladly received his work were baptized. Mm-hmm. Just before that, they were not very gladly. Mm-hmm. And suddenly they're glad they gladly received the word, and this is pre-baptism. Mm-hmm. We have the context, the the experiential context of the fact that when we repent, the Lord has told us that we're we're safe. Mm-hmm. We are safe. Uh, and you know the some of these other religions accuse us of underemphasizing baptism, but we know that they underemphasize the repentance mm-hmm. part. So you know, it, within context of the, the scriptures mm-hmm. and within this passage, something happened to those people to make them gladly receive mm-hmm. uh, before they were before they were ever baptized. Mm-hmm. Uh, but more more importantly. You preach repentance to somebody, and and if they repent to the fact that God forgives them, they're going to know that they're okay. They, they are going to know at that point that mm-hmm. they don't need that baptism to go to heaven mm-hmm. because it's already been shown shown to them. Mm-hmm. The thing is, is is you know all 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 religions get so wrapped up in their dogma that they don't try to let people work these things out for themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, you just take my word for it. And the thing is, is go to God. 
Absolutely. He can he can answer all the questions that we've got. And that's really the thing that we should be, and I think we do, is preach. Is point people to God, point people to Jesus. Let him tell you. Mm-hmm. Let him tell you what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just like somebody saying, Well, you know, I I, I can never be part of your religion. That's okay. Why don't you get saved and let the Lord tell you what to do? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, depend on we need to depend on the Lord to help us with these with these things. That's what mm-hmm. that's what Peter and the apostles were doing. Mm-hmm. And, and it's I've run into, and I'm sure you have too. I've I've had conversations with people who believe baptism's a necessity for salvation. And as I've described my salvation experience, there was one person in particular that said. Uh, when I came out of the water, that's what I felt. So when I described the moment that God saved me, their explanation was, yeah, when I rose up out of the water, that's how I felt. You know, He was a friend of mine, and I said, well, that feeling might have been the water was cold, right? and that's why he felt so relieved. But that's kind of tricky, too, because you know, at the core of it, I think having listened to a lot of um, people who believe that's necessary for salvation, what is most concerning to me is really the role of the Holy Spirit, is that if, if what they really believed was that you've got to pray the way we believe it and repent and God really save you and the Holy Spirit indwell, and then they just for comfort's sake added on this baptism thing, to be honest, I wouldn't argue with them that much. I don't think they're right. That's not that concerning to me. What's concerning to me is they really think that, hey, you just repeat these words and go through these motions, and then the moment you get baptized, you're safe. That, to me, is the concerning part, is, is it's really about the Holy Spirit. It's not about this action. It's the degree of belief and repentance that's required. And... Um, if they preach that right, if they really preach, belief is when you totally surrender and God, you know. Um, you're, you're indwelt by Him. I mean, you're, you're, there's so many things we could say about the Holy Spirit's um, however analogy we wanted to put it, you know, that He changes us. Um, but unfortunately... That religion in particular is a very sadly dogmatic one. Use the word, I think, and dangerous. Somebody else have a, a, a question or a point you want to make before we're done tonight? That's all I've got. That's where I'm going to stop tonight. And as you can see, we have about a, a page left. We're going to spend quite a bit of time dissecting because this is kind of the first time we see the church together. What happens after this? So it should be very instructive to us what our gathering looks like. Not our gathering in the sense of, hey, at 10.30 we have a service, but like, what does the institution look like? Right? And it's, to me, a very enlightening few verses that we have here, what they do right after they get saved and are joined the church and so forth. So 